Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. It's good to see you all here. I'm Rabbi Nick Renner filling in for Rabbi Bernstein. As I mentioned, she is away at the women's retreat this week, so it's my pleasure to be learning a little bit of Torah with you. This week we are in Parashat Mishpatim. Parashat Mishpatim. In the book of Exodus, it is chapter 21. So for those of you who are keeping score, we just moved out of Parashat Yitro. It's an interesting place that we're in. Mishpatim, does anyone know what Mishpatim means with that word? Was it Mishpocha? Mishpocha, okay, close to Mishpocha. Um, close to family, but not quite. Um, Mishpat is a judgment, that's right. These are laws. Rules. Rules, exactly. That's what it says. <laughs> that's what it says, and that's what it is. In fact, we are in a whole broad swath of rules. And I can see how family is related to that. You can see how family relates to that. There are certain kinds of boundaries, and perhaps, uh, depending on the behavior of your family, certain judgments might, which might befall the family member, the young one who steps out of line or some such. You can see the connection. It's etymologically a uh, different word, but I can totally see the thematic connection that you draw there. So, we are very much uh, shifting gears right now. We have been in all of this beautiful story and narrative and this incredible moment of leaving Egypt, this exodus, Yetziat Mitzrayim, and the redemption with this Yad Netiyah, this mighty hand and outstretched arm, into receiving the Ten Commandments, and all of a sudden it changes gears. Um, we are now moving into laws. Lots and lots and lots of laws and legal material. Um, I'm going to draw a little bit today on a commentator named the Svas Emes. He was uh, also known as the Gera Rebbe. This is a, uh, he was a Hasidic Rebbe from the uh, 1800s. And he wrote all of these sort of mystical, Kabbalistic commentaries week by week on all of these different pieces of Torah, every uh, Parshat Shavua, the Parsha of the Week. It's one of the things that the Gera Rebbe said about this particular Parsha, Ve'ela HaMishpatim, the, very, the first two words of it in Hebrew, he just seizes on that very first letter of the, of the Parsha, that Vav, Ve'ela, these are the laws, Ve'ela HaMishpatim. So he says that that vav, you tack that onto a Hebrew word to say and. It's, you know, how you connect two things. And he said, we need to read this as connected to all of that beautiful narrative that we had, this beautiful story that we have of redemption and uh, freedom, all of these things. It would be very easy to slip into thinking that this is uh, irrelevant or this is um, perhaps not irrelevant, but disappointing maybe after reading all of these wonderful and beautiful stories that now we're shifting to all of these strange and dry laws that you're supposed to simply remember and memorize. It's very different than uh, the text that came before it. So what the Sfas Emes says is that the revelation at Sinai, the receiving of Torah, the Yitziat Mitzrayim, this exodus from Egypt and redemption, he says all of these things are very much like a beautiful woman. 
And he said, what comes now are her bodyguards, the laws. So he said, these are essentially a companion piece, two pieces that are companions to one another in reading this. So this week we are with the bodyguards, as it were, of the beautiful story. So I'm going to give a little, just a little bit of overview of what we're going to see, because we're not going to cover all of these laws. But this section is called Sefer Habrit. It's called the Book of the Covenant. It spells out all of this legal material. It's got four parts in short. You don't have to take notes, but I just, or you're welcome to if you'd like. Uh, 21, 2 through 22, uh, 16 is a range of civil and criminal laws. The next section takes on the tone of the Ten Commandments. It even shifts gears within all of this legal material. The third part in chapter 23 is about divine promises to Israel, and it has more warnings about uh, paganism and assimilation and all the things that can happen to you. And the last part, chapter 24, actually returns back around. It comes full circle back to that narrative style. Rather than the legal, it's all about the ritual of ratifying the laws. And Moses is receiving the Aseret HaDibrot, the Ten Commandments in stone. So it takes us through this whole arc of all of these different laws. Topics that are included, um, we have slavery, capital offenses, violence towards slaves, killer animals, if your animal accidentally gores someone, uh, damage to livestock, theft, seduction, prohibition against sorcery and apostasy, the disadvantaged stranger, the widow, the orphan. We have pieces on interest, duties to God, judicial integrity, how to keep the judiciary intact, when it may be under attack. Um, humane treatment of the enemy in times of war. We have agricultural pieces, the calendar and when we celebrate holidays, and kashrut. Thank God. All of that all rolled into one mighty parsha of rules and laws. Does somebody want to read for us right from the beginning? We're just going to dive right in. Chapter 21. Chapter 21 of Exodus. Yeah. Thank you. This is why I only give chapter. I actually have a blue book, in fact. So it's good to know by it's good to navigate by chapter when you can. Twenty-one two. Twenty-one one. Yeah. Do the rules. Go ahead. When you acquire a Hebrew slave, that person shall serve six years and shall go free in the seventh year without payment. If a male slave came single, he shall leave single. If he had a wife, his wife shall leave with him. If his master gave him a wife and she has borne him children, the wife or children shall belong to the master, and he shall leave alone. But if the slave declares, I love my master and my wife and children, I do not wish to go free, his master shall take him before God. He shall be brought to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall then remain his master's slave for life. Okay, let's just take that much. That's enough. For, <laughs> that's enough just to start with. Questions, responses, thoughts. Yeah, go ahead. Well, it even seems more liberal than the early southern um, slaves. They were taken from their wives and children no matter what the circumstances. Okay. Lena Allen makes this great point. We, as Americans, it's almost impossible to read this absent the consciousness that we have about the uh, Atlantic slave trade 
and slavery in the American South. Um, it's almost impossible to read these sort of devoid of one another. Um, and you're right, and the rules here are different than they were in the South. Uh, still terrible. Still terrible. Doesn't make it good necessarily, but uh, but the rules are different. That is an interesting point. Go ahead. What's that about? Excellent point. God liberated, we have God redeeming the people from slavery, from bondage in Egypt, with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, and then what? We have Hebrew slaves? What on earth is that all about? Other so th- go ahead. They didn't uh, liberate them, so to speak, from ah, poverty. They, didn't, they weren't liberated from poverty. Interesting. And so, I mean, how... Even as recent as, I just remember England in the 1700s and mm-hmm. even 1800s, how did they deal with poverty? It was pretty bad. These are right. indentured slaves. Um, so, so they have a seven-year slavery period, and then they have a change. Okay, very just good. Like the land gets changed in seven years, too. Okay, so this is an important part and one of these important distinctions with uh, that we could draw from the Atlantic slave trade it's is that slaves here were not intended to be slaves for life. It was not intended to be your lot in life in a sense. There might be a period of servitude coming out of poverty and out of economic issues, but this was not intended to be your uh, destiny in a permanent sort of way. It wasn't like a caste. Right. It's not like a caste system. It's designed to keep society more fluid uh, than was possible, say, in the Atlantic slave trade. Rabbi Jonathan, yeah, go ahead. This is for Hebrew slaves. I assume, given that Hebrew slaves, they were non-Hebrew slaves. Okay, very good. And it doesn't talk to them. So the rules change, and if we were to fast forward a bunch of chapters, we would see... um, laws for slaves who aren't Hebrews are different because oftentimes how would one come into having slaves that were not of your own people? War. So the rules around slavery for other peoples are going to connect to the rules around warfare, um, almost necessarily. I want to hang on this point for just a moment. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the uh, chief rabbi emeritus of Britain, the United Kingdom, people are nodding their heads, familiar with this particular luminary, uh, said that Slavery might be something that happens to you, but it's not intended to be an existential condition, in his words. He says, really, you could look at it more like debt in that way. Um, And that is something that we are familiar with in our lives oftentimes, though. If you take on loans for education or for a home, for a car or something, debt is something that we're connected to and we're familiar with. It's something you work toward and you pay off and then you... um, you know, the Ezrat Hashem, God willing, get out from under it is the whole idea behind it. But it's not supposed to be this existential piece. Um, so in some ways, the England parallel is not a bad one either in that there's a sort of similarity to indentured servitude. Yeah. But it looks like after seven years, the male slave can go free. Right. But his wife and children are still slaves. That's right. Is that forever? So... What we're looking at here is also the convergence of, an, of this system of slaves and indentured servitude with another system that is very difficult for us to hold in our contemporary space, which is the status of women. Um, the status of women in Torah 
is not the same as the status of men. We see that disparity uh, with some degree of regularity. Um, now, here's the bizarre part. I'm going to say this, and it's going to sound totally bizarre. I'm owning that right up front. Um, the Torah at the time was probably, in terms of how it thought and looked at gender, um, was probably pretty progressive in its own context. A lot of what we see as being very... Oh, a lot of what we see as rightfully being the imbalance and the inequity between men and women, uh, at the time, these might have been protections that they were trying to build in. In this agrarian society where men and women did not have equality and in surrounding places where gender dynamics might have been uh, dictated purely by the use of physical strength or force, what the Torah is trying to do is build in some rules such that physical force does not dictate um, the role of women, the connection of men and women in their roles within society. They're trying to figure out uh, a greater degree of protection, at least, for women than uh, one might find in sort of like a, a Hobbesian jungle of the uh, strong, of might making right, in a women sense. Women were certainly more vulnerable. Yes. So they had to be more protected. That's right. And there are some men who still feel that. Um, and, and perhaps women are more vulnerable still in some ways than men. We're still cautioned to be very careful with widows and orphans and, That's right. and the vulnerable in society. But look at the stories that we've been reading mm -hmm. and how powerful the women are in the development of the society. That's right. So women are given power in the stories, but it may not be political or gender power. They, so the role and the nature of women's power, I, all of those points are, I think, absolutely uh, spot on. That we see the agency and the initiative of Rebecca. We see Miriam's role in a lot of these pieces. Uh, to speak of the gender imbalance is not to diminish the agency and the initiative that women had in shaping Israelite society and the Israelite narrative of who is an Israelite, who is Jewish in that sense. Um, so we absolutely don't want to lose sight of that, even while we hold the imbalances here. And, and work not, to improve them. And we work to improve them, and work to improve them in our day, too. Uh, I don't think we have reached a complete and total parity, equality, um, in terms of the genders, the sexes, in our society today. So uh, it's an interesting thing to think about. Torah, we have this whole piece about Torah. Ein mukdam u'me'ochar b'Torah. There's no such thing as early or late in Torah. There's no temporality to it. This is something that lives and breathes and continues into our own time. Um, and we find ourselves on a trajectory of sorts. We're not living in an agrarian society where uh, those are the particular needs. We've actually gone through industrialization and we're beyond that into this information and technology and digital society. So the roles that men and women can have are kind of automatically, necessarily, be different in society today. And they should be. So while Torah lives and breathes and moves through its cycles, uh, our times change as well. And that's a good thing. Reconstructionist Judaism would tell us that as uh, our Jewish civilization evolves, that's a positive thing. That's something to be celebrated and held with some degree of, um, of triumph as a, as a piece. So... We've diverged a little bit into this conversation about women's roles within Israelite society. Um, I want to move us back to all of this strange slavery piece. Um, it is particularly jarring to have come right out of uh, slavery in Egypt 
and then suddenly be back talking about slavery. Thoughts, responses. Go ahead. It doesn't speak to what happens to the children in the envelope. Well, they stay with the mom. And I think that that's one of the things that is really interesting talking about women's power. Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't say that much about the power an Israelite woman might have in society. She always has power over her own family. So no matter where the wife goes or the mom goes, her children stay with her, which I thought was interesting. But are the children slaves? They, the so, Atlantic slave trade was based on breeding. Right. right. And that was one of the things that it says here in the at the bottom. It says, you know, if the master provides a slave wife for one of his slaves, those are the houseborn slaves, which makes sense if you're a master, I guess not in today's sense, but in this sense, if a master provides a slave, whatever comes from that slave belongs to the master. So if you're talking about human as labor, then the children that are born from his property remain his property. So the rabbis, excellent points all around. The rabbis go back and forth about this, about to what extent uh, do they belong to the master in perpetuity. there's a rabbinic interpretation, however, that, you know, we have this jubilee year after <clears throat> seven cycles of seven uh, that's supposed to be a reset button of everything. A lot of the rabbis see that as the end point of this, that, again, um, to return to what Jonathan Sachs says, it's not an existential condition, that there are these built-in reset moments in society. So the rabbis come down on this idea that the jubilee would reset all of these. So even if someone was born into this, there is still the out. Um, these things are supposed to reset so as to avoid, um, somebody mentioned, a caste system. Um, that is what we're not supposed to get into with all of this. So it's interesting to see both the tension between freedom and letting people go after a certain interval of time, um, but also people being born into this. And as you mentioned, the property aspect of it, that um, this idea of owning people uh, is a really challenging thing that the Torah wrestles with. Yeah. Could this also be tackling with the times that yes. it was written in, that there are slaves? So how are we going to deal with this in a more possibly humane way? Very good. Um, so the Torah, there are some pieces of it that you can make the argument it's utopian in nature. It's arguing for this greater, wonderful, ideal place. And there's a lot of Torah and a lot of Tanakh, a lot of Hebrew Bible that's dealing not in what they would hope the world would ideally be, but dealing with the reality of the world that is. Uh, And we do know historically that slavery was endemic in the ancient Near East, all over the Mediterranean basin, that this was a big piece of the human condition. Uh, So the Torah finds itself in this really interesting tension between what we would hope for and what we would aspire to and what what is, what people are doing. And um, here we are today. <laughs> I had a, and here we are today. I had a rabbi that talked about Judaism when I was in rabbinical school as somewhere between the tension of what the rabbis and Jewish authorities and the Torah and all these texts are telling you Jews are supposed to be or do. Somewhere between all of that and then what Jews actually do. Um, and Judaism is probably somewhere in between. The truth of this thing is probably somewhere in between as well, that we're dealing with something that is in system that is imperfect. Um, we have all of this stuff, the Torah telling us uh, 
No, fewer than 36 times you shall not oppress the stranger, for you were strangers in Egypt. Um, I'll put it like this. I don't think the Torah is telling us that uh, because it's something that we already know and have internalized and it's easy for us. It doesn't have to keep repeating it um, to an audience that already gets that and understands it viscerally and has already taken that in. You could say it once. Fine, we understand, we get it. Do not oppress the stranger. Uh, you have to say it a lot of times if it's an issue. But it's not the system that's imperfect. It's us who are imperfect. And the Torah accepts that we're not perfect and directs much of its conversation to that I would suggest both. I would suggest that we can ourselves can be imperfect in our journeys, our meanderings, our wanderings, our trying to do the best we can, and the system can have problems and be challenging. It's the reason that we have a Talmud, uh, these rabbis writing 63 volumes of what look like an encyclopedia because they're trying to figure out how to make the system work in a lived experiential way. Uh, it's the reason we're still dealing in the realm of, well, do we follow Jewish law? Do we not follow Jewish law? Does Jewish law change and evolve over time? Because we're wrestling with it, because even the system has its own challenges baked in. It does. If we look at the, the law and the Torah as divinely inspired to say the system is not perfect would be making a comment on whether God is imperfect. Mm -hmm. So I think we really have a dichotomy here. And perhaps I'm looking at the law as the aspiration that God gave Moses and all of us as we see the spark of divinity in each person. Mm -hmm. And then we vary from that. Beautiful. I think that's a great way of holding it. Um, people have asked me, but yeah, go ahead. But God also gives us the right to talk back. Yes. Yes. Right. I mean, God that's doesn't, right. you know, when, when, Abra when, when Abraham, you know, spoke for the ten righteous in... In, I think it was Abraham in the Ten Righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, God didn't smite him for talking back, right? Right, and so the implication, if, if presumably the implication is that uh, God is in effect saying, "Okay, maybe I didn't think everything through." Okay, <laughs> so. That's a great and fascinating direction to go in, the fact that we do have this choice and we can get it wrong, and we are people who sometimes even Yisrael, the one who wrestles with God in that sense. Um, there's this great midrash uh, that the rabbis tell. They're talking about prayer. They're Basically, this is in the Talmud very early on. They're in the business of inventing prayer because their whole sacrificial system has been wiped out. The temple's been destroyed. So they need to invent a relationship with God. They're talking about prayer. They're coming up with this for the first time. Rather than sacrifices, we're going to say words of devotion, and that's how we're going to have a relationship to God. So they're innovating prayer. And, of course, the rabbis, you know, they see us as being B'Tselem Elohim, being made in the image of God. And so they ask this, ask this question, well, what does God pray for? If we're praying, therefore God must be praying. And they say that God prays that God's mercy outweighs God's justice. And that if God is praying this, then that means God can have second thoughts or go around. This is just one, a rabbinic Talmudic take on this same question you ask about um, perfection and free will and all of these things. Um, that even the rabbis wrestle with that, and they've been grappling with this for you know, upwards of 2,000 years. Um, that God's mercy would outweigh God's justice. I think it's sort of a beautiful thing to think about when we consider our own free will and our own ability to choose. Um, we other still th say to our children, use your words. 
Use your words. Beautiful. Um, a beautiful thing when we think about prayer, in fact, and that kind of relationship we have. The direction you go in and asking about uh, the free will of people, I actually have a note here that I pulled aside from the Kutzker Rebbe, another Hasidic Rebbe who talks about how there are lots and lots of angels, seraphim and holy beings and all these different categories of holy angels and things that are all holy and they all do the right thing and they're all perfect and everything is good and wonderful and, well, for me to embellish on the Kutzka Rebbe, he didn't say this, I'll say it, terribly boring um, with all of this infinite holiness where everything is just right. Uh, what's really fascinating to God uh, are people and people making the choice to do the right thing. This is what's fascinating to him with all of these laws, and that's where the Kutzker Rebbe finds real holiness in choice. Um, that here are all of these laws, we have to figure out how we're going to navigate them and negotiate them. But that trying to figure out that discernment around them and that free will, that's where the holiness comes in for him. Because that's the interesting part. That's the part where we have to use our own intellect and our own souls to make good decisions, to care for other people who are in need. Um, the holy beings, all of this infinite holiness with God, the Ein Sof, that which is infinite and without end. Okay, maybe it's a little bit uninteresting next to flawed human beings who are doing their best to make choices around all of these different statutes. Yeah. What? God influenced the pharaohs. Ah. The pharaohs' will to do uh, to not pay attention to the Israelites who wanted to leave, and kept giving plagues. So he does. Uh, she. He. She. <laughs> uh, does influence individual choice. Yes. Can. Yes. We find ourselves at such an interesting tension all through Yitziat Mitzrayim between the people needing to take that first step. Think about Nachshon at the edge of the sea, waiting for the waters to part. This is Midrash. This is rabbinic material. This isn't in Torah, but I imagine some of you have heard this story that the sea is supposed to split, but it hasn't split yet. And the Israelites are all waiting there sort of eyeing one another nervously at the edge of the water. What do we do? The army is coming up behind this pharaoh and all of his chariots. Um, and Nachshon has to take that first step, and then the next step after that. And the water is coming up higher and higher and higher. And it's getting to the point where it's going to drown poor Nachshon, this one guy who has that kind of initiative to step forward. And that's when the sea starts to split. That moment when we actually step into the breach, when we as individuals make that choice, that's when the divine and holy thing takes place. So you have that on one hand, but then on the other hand, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Sounds kind of like God is the puppet master pulling the strings of all of these uh, events taking place. It's this question of how much do we have to do for this redemption and how much does God just do for us? Um, that's a real tension through it. I'm not sure there's an easy, hard and fast answer to it because that answer seems to change throughout that narrative. But that is the tension, certainly, of Yetziat Mitzrayim, of leaving Egypt and the redemption. Go ahead. But I think it's interesting, going back to the point that we are created in God's image, that, of course, throughout the Torah, we're shown that God makes certain decisions. But mm -hmm. it's also shown that people make certain decisions. And yep. so I think that free will that God has is built into humans mm -hmm. in 
I mean, in God's image, that is part of God's image, is having that free will. Beautiful. So. Absolutely. So that free will, uh, that choice that comes into it that makes this so interesting. Yeah, maybe that's another piece of being B'Tselem Elohim, being in the image of God in that sense. And if the first prayer is hoping that God's mercy is first, I think that when God steps in, mm-hmm. a lot of the times it's when he sees that humans are also making that decision to show mercy first. So we very much are partners with the divine in shaping this world one way or another. We're stewards in effect. Um, it's not totally on God, but it's also not totally on us. It is part of that tension, but being made B'Tselem Elohim in this reflection, the image of the divine, is exercising that choice, is exercising discernment. It's exercising free will and doing what is right, in a sense. Um, this is sort of what comes to mind in thinking about this. If you ever read uh, Sefer Shoftim uh, in the Tanakh, the book of Judges, we don't tend to read it in this place because we have our Torah classes, which work on that lectionary cycle um, going through Torah. We hit uh, Dvarim, we hit Deuteronomy, and we go back to the beginning again. We just go back to Genesis. So we don't often... Um, unless you're taking a class specifically on this, and um, in the coming years I'm thinking I'm going to teach this, uh, we don't necessarily see what happens after the Israelites then cross into, into the land. Um, we start back over again. Sefer Shoftim, Judges, as it's often called in uh, English, is a really dark book. It's probably the most horrific material you'll find in the Hebrew Bible. Um, and so I've had this conversation with people before, with the violence of the book of Judges. How does that fit into the Bible being this holy and beautiful thing? Well, it goes back to free will. People can make the decision to do terrible things. And we see people make the decision to do terrible things. And that's a piece of being human. I would say that the Bible in that sense is not necessarily always what we aspire to as the most beautiful, upright, holy, lovely thing. It reflects that span of what being human is. It reflects the exalted, the beautiful, the uh, our aspirational pieces. And it reflects, you know, not that. So all of it gets contained in that. That's I'm sort of it's a, it's a little bit of a tangent, but I think it speaks to that free will piece that we're talking about here. That um, that really is what the Bible is all about, is about the kinds of choice that we make and the kinds of decisions we make and how we live within these systems and the flaws of them so to speak. And it is interesting, too, that even though these are legal documents, so to speak, the free will is still built into it. It says, mm-hmm. you know, if the slave decides, if the master decides. So it's interesting that even within the legal, what should be a hard and fast rule, our human will is still built in. Very good. First and foremost in, you're allowed to do all of this stuff, but it comes down to a choice. You have to decide one way or the other. You're, you make decisions in and around yourself and your family. Uh, that part is not too hard to decide. Um, my wife and I made the decision to leave Philadelphia, to come to the West Coast, to uproot from everything that we had there. And I appreciate it. It's good to be here with all of you as well. But that was a decision we made. That, was, that came through some kind of act of discernment to uproot and relocate and do something differently. We see that same material here, that these families 
they have the will to decide. They have you the wherewithal to, to make. They had to cross the desert too. They had to cross the great expanse. Well, I did too. Yeah, um, less desert. It's a little dry in parts of you know Arizona and New Mexico, notwithstanding. But um, yeah, but it comes back to that decision. That decision and how it is that we constitute ourselves and our families. What decisions we make in and around debt and economic factors and the like. Uh, the slavery piece is kind of hard to imagine. I don't own slaves. Um, I don't think anyone in this room owns slaves either. But these decisions that we make in and around our families and when, where we might choose to go, what we might take on in terms of the economic piece of it, that part's not too hard to imagine. What kinds of debt we might take on, what kinds of decisions we would make along those lines, um, that conversation certainly reverberates in this time today. Uh, and to take another you know, severe, sharp turn, uh, I understand from, uh, I'm trying to remember whether there's Amnesty International. I understand that there are more slaves today than there were in the ancient world, numerically. As shocking as that sounds. Uh, exactly, there are more people. Uh, and human trafficking is a profound and terrible problem that society still wrestles with. Even in this country. Even in this country. <laughs> In this city, in this community, um, I am sure that this kind of trafficking takes place. Our discourse in and around refugees and immigrants in particular, um, creating that kind of fear around that only creates greater vulnerability as well, and it creates opportunities to exploit those who uh, are vulnerable to certain kinds of trafficking as well. Um, this is a real issue, the kinds of people, not just trafficking in people from other countries, bringing them here, or other countries trafficking in people. Um, but, but children. The, the Museum of Tolerance had a speaker a couple years ago on human trafficking in Los Angeles and how big it is, what a huge problem it is in Los Angeles. California has one of the highest rates in the U.S. Yes, that doesn't surprise me at all. So... Here, did you want to did you want to share with the group? Go ahead. This children went off. When this president talks about, he talks about bad dudes, but he doesn't talk about children. He doesn't talk about women. He doesn't talk about people just quote unquote bad dudes. So, what's amazing about this material that we have in Torah and Mishpatim, in contrast to our political rhetoric about bad dudes and bad hombres and the terrorists and whatever, uh, we do in Mishpatim get women and children and families that get broken up. Um, we get the ramifications of what it means to treat the slave one way or another, to break a family one way or another. That's why we have all of this bizarre um, business with the awl and piercing the ear is because the Torah gets what it means to break a family apart, to rupture a family in those ties, and so they have mechanisms built in to address that. We aren't getting that in our political discourse, in our civil discourse, by and large. We aren't getting what it means to rupture families, um, what it means to do this to uh, children and even people. Even though it exists, we're not getting it. We're not getting it in our discourse, even though it is no less real today than it was in Parashat Mishpatim. Uh, we're just not getting that. And so I'm, this is why I wanted you to share that with the group, is because that's a very, very important piece to bring to the forefront, that that's not taking place in our broader discourse right now. And it's 
very much part of the reality of it. But what, what do you mean by we're not getting it as a society? I think it is it. taking place in our discourse, but just the political divide is so intense. Okay. Well, point taken. Perhaps it's the political divide um, that is causing us not to address that in certain places. Um, when I talk about our discourse, I am talking about a very specific uh, sort of set of rhetoric and set of points that get used for a political purpose, um, this sort of otherizing that takes place to say it is us versus them, um, the bad dudes, the bad hombres that we're against. Um, within that trope, certainly we're not addressing uh, what it means to do this to families, what it means to do this to children, to people who haven't necessarily chosen um, even to be in the middle of this. Uh, and, Frank, I think as you rightly point out, there are those who are having a different conversation around this, and I would aspire to a different conversation as well around issues of uh, refugees and immigrants and people who are uh, disempowered within our political and culture, cultural uh, system in that sense. Is in signs that they're carrying. Yeah. It's the only way they can be heard, really. Yeah, that's right. Um, so even... You know, it's funny, you crack open something like Mishpatim. I mean, I did this over the past few days when I was prepping for this conversation with all of you. My first uh, response, I am not perfect, I am not the rabbi I would love to be. I look at this and I say, oh man, it's Mishpatim. It's all the laws, it's all of that stuff. But you know what, you scratch at the surface and you find that it actually has a lot to say to us. Um, and this was my experience, actually, in reading some of these, you know, Rebbe's and older people in this, is that, yeah, this isn't so far away from us. And this is sort of the truth of Torah. So once I get beyond my initial, oh, man, we're going to talk about piercing the ear with the awl and the slave and all of that. Or no. putting numbers on the arm. That was the same thing. Or putting numbers on the mm -hmm. arm. Rabbi, do you think yes. is a problem? Wait till we get to Leviticus. <laughs> <laughs> if we think Mishpatim is challenging, wait till Leviticus. Um, <laughs> well, I'll tell you what I say to every bar and bat mitzvah who has one of these Torah portions. I say in many ways, yes, these are not the beautiful cut and dry narratives that are fun to read about Noah and his ark and all of these. But I actually like these Torah portions better. Uh, they're harder. There, yep, there's more pull, there's more tension, and when you scratch at the surface of them, you begin to see what it meant, what it was experientially like to be an ancient Israelite. And you begin to see the ways in which the ancient Israelites actually, in spite of their agrarian society and uh, their sacrifices and all these things, are not that different from us in that way. They're holding the same tensions of family, of values, of all of these pieces uh, that we hold, the economics of the thing and all of that. Um, it may not be so far away from us. Now, then you pivot from all of this seeing, you know, that it may be similar to us. And then this question is, well, what do you do with this? How is this actually applicable or relevant or meaningful in our lives? Um, I want to go back to that question now of why on earth, if we have just left Egypt and just left slavery, why would then you then tack a whole bunch of laws about slaves on right after that part in the narrative. Why are we going from our own slavery to, oh yeah, and by the way, when you have your Hebrew slaves that you keep, how does that make sense? How do we slice that? Well, every Passover we still say, and remember that you were slaves in Egypt, we are still slaves Okay. to different things. Maybe okay. to a master pierces our ears. We do that ourselves now. Anyway. <laughs> but it's to relate to all. Very good. We are slaves. So that's very much one of them. Um, that, uh, yeah, go ahead. 
these sessions that there was a discussion about how, how every moral edict has a pragmatic basis to it. Mm -hmm. you know? And uh, you know, this thing about freeing slaves every seventh year, maybe that was, the pragmatism was that you know, the Israelites um, were free as a result of the slave revolt. Mm. And so the idea of becoming a, you know, being a good master versus a bad master is that, you know, if you don't, if you don't treat your slaves well, they are going to revolt. So, you know, there's, all, there's a, a limit to what you can do uh, before the people will rise up against you. Okay, good. Yeah, go ahead, Richard. Um, I think that there's a recognition that there's a, there's a limit to what can actually take place in the world. As you pointed yeah. out, as you pointed out, slavery, the, the, the institution of slavery mm -hmm. was just a fact of life throughout the Middle East, throughout the Near East, throughout the Mediterranean Basin. And so it's- And today. So, and, <laughs> and today. But the issue, but the issue at that time was, you know, it's sort of what the, what the, what the Egyptians were doing to the Israelites was essentially taking absolutely everything away from them. Mm -hmm. They had they had no efficacy. They had no autonomy. They had no absolutely no rights whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And I think that and and here we are. We've just crossed. We've just crossed over. And here we are talking about what are the rules for slaves. Mm -hmm. We don't say there shall be no slavery. Because the people of that time could not conceive of a world without slavery, mm -hmm. right? But if you're going to have slaves, you have to treat them appropriately. You have to treat them reasonably well. Mm -hmm. You can't you can't tear families apart. You can't you you know you can't just beat your beat your slaves on a whim mm -hmm. and thing, and you have to free them every seven years and you know get new slaves or whatever. But mm -hmm. So there's a there's a tension between, and this goes back to what we were also talking about earlier. There, there's a tension between sort of an ideal world mm -hmm. where there's no need for slavery, which at this point nobody can imagine. Right. But given that we can't get there, at least let's treat the slaves that we have properly. Great. I think uh, that tension between the world that we live in and the world we would like to see, uh, we see this written all across this. I also think yeah. building off of that, you know, language progresses obviously and changes, but a society's perception of things that it already has can only change so much, and the language can only change as much as our current perception allows. So I think it's interesting that they might have just not had the word for what they meant. The first line is, Oh, these aren't the slaves that were the slaves to the pharaohs. These are different slaves. They only served for seven years. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that up front they say these are different slaves. They just don't have the language to say it's a different thing. It's not what we were talking right. about. And the fact mm -hmm. that we are using we are using the word slaves right. that's tinged by over three hundred years of history right. in our country as to what slavery means in our country not what slavery meant 3,000 years ago. So I'll tell you that one thing that's pretty weird, if you are in Israel and you speak Hebrew, to see signs up uh, advertising, asking for foreign laborers, guess what the word is in Hebrew? These avadim, I saw a notice looking for avadim zarim, these foreign laborers, as it were, 
um, that slave word is the same, the one who works in that sense. Um, I saw a hand over here. Did you want to? No, I just, if I, I mean, I think of, no. what I find confusing is that if I was a slave, I wouldn't feel so good. And mm-hmm. even if I knew that I was going to be not be a slave in seven years, I still wouldn't feel so terrific about being a slave. Mm-hmm. So I don't, like, I don't. It's not positive necessarily. It doesn't leave you with a sunny, feel-good kind of. Uh... No, I'm still a slave. <laughs> Okay, very good. Were, there's a different kind of slaves. The slaves in Egypt were supposedly boulders. Mm-hmm. The slaves that they're talking about here are workers, farm workers. They're agrarian. Laborers. Laborers. And perhaps the seven years relates to leaving the land fallow for a year. Mm-hmm. Because he said you're, on the seventh year you'll be, you won't be paid. So it's got something to do with the change in the, the cultural dynamic of the time. So that change, that shift, that end point, um, one of my teachers, Rabbi uh, Diane Kohler Esses, says that in looking at Mishpatim and looking at these laws about slavery, we're not supposed to look at the period of it. She said the most important part is looking at the end of it, that shift, as it were, that redeeming of people from the system of what have you. Um, and she goes into the actual word, Yishalchenu, about you shall release this slave. Turns out that's the exact same word that Moses says to Pharaoh when he says, let my people go. Shalach et ami. That shalach word is about releasing, letting go, sending away. And so she says that when we have this commandment, we're both telling Pharaoh to let the people go, and we see God then deliver the people with this yad netiyah, the mighty hand and outstretched arm. When we see that word then applied to us, it takes it to this next level. We're not supposed to just see ourselves, B'Tselem Elohim. We are supposed to act, B'Tselem Elohim. That we are supposed to be the ones that cause freedom, that send the other person away from bondage, from slavery, from uh, that kind of oppression. We're supposed to not just uh, see ourselves as in the image of God, but we're supposed to model our actions in that way. So she said that the reason this comes right after it is that we know how it ends. We know how Yetziat Mitzrayim, the story of the exodus from Egypt, ends. It ends in the redemption of the people. It ends in freedom. So if you're going to look at slavery in the world, in the world you inhabit as a breathing, living institution, you need to pay attention to how it ends. You need to look at what God did, and you need to model your own actions with your own uh, laborers, workers, uh, those who are indentured or indebted to you, those who are enslaved to you, you need to act B'Tselem Elohim in the world in this sense. Um, that that's what the real message of this is. This is what Rabbi uh, Kohler Esses suggests, is that it's all about the way in which we release the other and we let them go, the way in which we act to create more freedom in this world. Um, the slave part and the rules about it that's just sort of, she says, the preamble leading us up to the real holy part, which is that act of shalach, yeshalchenu, that releasing, that letting go, that we're supposed to emulate God in that sense. Other thoughts? Yeah, what, uh, I'm stuck on the children yeah. uh, who they're born slaves. Mm-hmm. And so do they get a chance to leave slavery or are they going to be... That's a rabbinic children? debate. They're not sure. The text, because it... This is the great thing. There are places in Torah that aren't totally clear, and the rabbis take that as an invitation just to go nuts. 
They'll have the greatest debates over centuries and millennia about what that actually means. So here, because it's not clear, they go wild. So some of them say that, yes, it's after seven years based on that, uh, that period of letting the land lie fallow in the same way that we saw earlier with the other slaves. Other ones say that it's based on the Yovel, the Jubilee year. So that would be after 49 years. Others say it is a permanent condition. There's no consensus on it. That's the beautiful thing about Talmud and that rollicking round and round discussion. But you're right to point that out because it's not entirely clear. It, it is an invitation for us to play in that space because it's not clear. What about psychologically? You know, we all slaves to the conditioning we live in. Very good. You know, I come from apartheid with a background. Okay. I didn't even know I was living in an apartheid regime. Yeah. I was brought up as a child in that regime. Mm-hmm. And if you're brought up as a slave, you don't have any other way. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few people who rise above it, but very few. It's a very different experience for the bar and bat mitzvah students who grow up here, surrounded by trillions and bazillions of Jews. I'm exaggerating, of course, but this is a very prominent Jewish community. There are huge numbers of Jews. It's easy to feel surrounded by Jews. Um, I didn't grow up in that, in North Carolina. I had this sense that there were very, very few Jewish people surrounded by people who may feel one way or the other about the fact that you're Jewish. What you grow up in, in that sense, uh, very much impacts the way you see yourself. You can absolutely be in a place of a psychological or an emotional uh, slavery of your own. You can be locked into a certain situation by virtue of the way in which you grow up or you see yourself. Slavery does not have to be, indebtedness does not have to be a physical condition. I think you're absolutely right to point that out. Yes, there are abusive relationships. I think about those kinds of questions that come up. It's very easy for somebody on the outside of an abusive relationship to say, well, why didn't she just leave him earlier? You know? And it's never that simple. It's never that simple. So there are all kinds of uh, servitude, of slavery, um, of bondage, of oppression, in fact, that we can find ourselves in uh, that are not just that aren't just something you can see because you have pierced the ear with an awl. There are all manner of uh, oppression that we can live with. Some of them don't leave those outward marks in that sense. Um, it's absolutely true. Yeah. Talk about looking to the end of the story. If we knew that whatever negative experience we're having that makes us feel enslaved is going to end in seven years, mm-hmm. we're going to have a slightly different view. And the person who is the the bonder, the one who is the slave owner, if he knows his slaves are going to be free in seven years, is going to treat them a different way. I know that with the people we employ as housekeepers or gardeners or pool people or whatever, if we see that we're not treating them well, we don't pay them on time or we Mm -hmm. try to pay them less money, we're not going to get the same result as if we treat them well, pay them on time, and give them a raise from time to time or whatever. It makes a difference in the dynamic between the owner and the slave. Mm -hmm. There is an end in seven years. It introduces a certain kind of reciprocity that you don't get in, say, the Atlantic slave trade. Right. Um, It's a very different dynamic in that sense. If you know that these people are going to be free and going to be equal to you in society in just a few years, um, it changes that. You can't recognize the difference except with the ear piercing, and the Jewish slave, as you could with the black people brought into this country as slaves. They were so identifiable. 
That's right. The dealing in sort of, uh, yeah, the, the racial phenotypes that were attached to the Atlantic slave trade, that's a way different dynamic than what we have yes. here um, with this system of Hebrew slaves. The Hebrews, they're still you on a level. You have to view them as you on a certain level. And again, we could get into a totally different discussion about the rules of warfare and about the other in that sense, because that does get trickier. But in dealing with these slaves in this system that we're looking at here, they're you. You're not able to otherize them and put them down and uh, put them out of sight and out of mind. Uh, you, you can't do that. Or justify having them enslaved because they have some racially inferior mm-hmm. quality as right. has been done in Absolutely. America. Yeah. Well, as long as we're talking about slavery in general, I mean, the the between 1500 and uh, late 1400s and 1800, there were a million Europeans who were essentially uh taken into slavery by the Barbary pirates. Mm-hmm. And, but I, I don't think there was, uh, there's any evidence that that was done on any sort of a racial basis. Uh, simply, you know, they were just, uh, the Barbary pirates were opportunistic and they just grabbed whoever they could grab because they could grab them. The Romans are another good right. example of that. They, I mean, that was a huge empire that grew in every direction. And that was cool. They would just enslave whoever it was they were steamrolling over as a you know a military force. So they're another example of that. So the way in which race... Um, it's not always an issue. Right. It's it is in, in some circumstances. It certainly was in the American experience. British targets of the blacks in Africa. Right. And the one interesting thing about it is that the, the black people were enslaved and this very thick burn in their ears. Mm. They pierce their ears to this day. We'll see a lot of mm. piercing on the ear in the, in the particular way mentioned here. Yeah. Interesting. It's, it's, it's amazing how things cost, you know, continue in strange ways. Now it's a fashion. Yeah, interesting. So we're, okay, one more and then we'll, we'll draw to a close. Oh, okay. I'm going to go to the next sentence. <laughs> a lovely idea. Well, it has to do again with the nature of slavery. When a parent sells a daughter as a slave, she shall not go free as other slaves. But one of the points is, it's a way out of poverty. Mm-hmm. You sell your kid, and in Thailand, when I was here many years ago, it wasn't slavery, but the parents would send their daughters to the whorehouses to work. And they would send money back to the parents, mm-hmm. and it was a, it wasn't slavery; it was a job. Mm-hmm. Well, it was slavery. Yeah. Well, it, it is, yeah. depending how you define slavery. But that's the point here is that if you could sell your your kid, now I don't know if you could sell males, but you could sell your daughter. You could maybe get out of poverty and get a better life for yourself. So I just, I'll just continue very briefly in this, just to where it goes. Um, if the daughter proves displeasing to the master who designated her for himself, he has to let her go free. Because, again, we're dealing in this space in which virginity was a commodity uh, in the ancient Near East. Again, it's not something that uh, we necessarily uplift or celebrate, but they're trying to build in protections for somebody who would have then been 
seen as having compromised status within the system. So it says you can't you can't then just resell this person. This person goes free because you took them for yourself. If you didn't hold on to them and keep them as your family, essentially, they have to be free. Um, and so again, it's building in more protections. I'm going to jump all the way to 2230 to just for the last word here. Chapter 22, verse 30 says, You shall be holy people to me. You shall not, must not eat flesh torn by wild beasts in the field. You shall cast it to dogs. We get this whole piece about kashrut that totally seems different than the slavery. I'm not going to get into the kashrut here, but I am going to end with this piece. You shall be holy people to me. The Sfas Emes, I told you we were going to come back to Sfas Emes. Again, this mystical Hasidic Rebbe. Uh, he says that that actually is the linchpin of this entire Parsha. Anshe Kodesh Tihiyunli. There are a lot of ways to slice that. You shall be holy people to me. That Tihiyun, that word, in Hebrew is both the imperative, you shall be, you you do this, uh, and it's also the future tense. You will be. And so what he says in this is that it's both telling us that we need to live up to the highest ideals and aspirations of what this shows us in terms of, I'm going to frame this with what Rabbi Diane Kohler Esses says in terms of acting B'Tselem Elohim. Um, but there's also a piece that's hopeful. We can be holy in the future. Uh, it's both at the same time. It's telling us we need to act as best we can, B'Tselem Elohim, to our highest aspirations and our best values, but that if we really work toward it, we can attain that, that we can be in the future holy, or at least we can find a greater measure of holiness. When he uses the future tense of this, you will be holy people. I'm reminded of uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King saying the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Um, this idea that we look forward in the future, it doesn't absolve us of what we need to do here and now in our place to act B'Tselem Elohim, but it gives us hope. It gives us a direction forward, a path forward that we can attain greater holiness. We can act to make greater holiness in this world. We can act to make other people more free. Um, We can act to redeem others from oppression, whether that oppression is physical, whether that's emotional, whether that's financial, whether that is um, a group of people who are oppressed within society. We can change that discourse around the other being bad people. We can talk about what this means to families and to children in our political discourse. We can shift the needle sort of like what Frank was saying. We don't have to buy into a discourse of the other um, being bad hombres and bad dudes. We actually have the ability to tilt the needle ourselves. And if we continue to act B'Tselem Elohim, the Sfas MS tells us, yeah, we can attain a certain kind of holiness. We can move toward that in our own journeys, in our own lives. So it's both a commandment But it's a piece that gives hope. It's an aspiration. It shows us that there is, in fact, even when things look dark or there may be a particular uh, scarcity of freedom or there may be much oppression that we see around us, that we can act to tilt the needle just a little bit. So I will take that myself going into this week from the Sfas Emes. And with that, I will say Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.